1: it was a certain point where i'm like okay i'm gonna lose 80 grand or i'm deaf like i knew i was definitely gonna lose everything 250 to 300 in the first year and so it was either like okay you're gonna lose 100 now or you're gonna lose even more
0: this is music made me do it a podcast from loud and quiet magazine i'm stuart stubbs and each week i'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry Almost everyone who's ever been to a music festival has had that moment where they've been sat around with friends arguing about who they would have booked for the bill if the festival was theirs. In 2005, that was Simon Taff, who took the idea and ran with it. The following year, he launched End of the Road with no previous experience in the music industry or promoting events. Simon was the head of his own decorating firm, and it would be a steep and costly learning curve to put on the first edition of End of the Road in 2006. Since then, it has reached a capacity of 15,000 people and remains a resolutely independent festival, known for its set design and beautiful sight in the Wiltshire countryside as much as it is for its alt lineups. End of the Road book artists like Patti Smith, Sufyan Stevens, Mogwai, David Byrne and St Vincent. This is the story of how Simon pieced together exactly what you need to put on your own music festival and how a certain amount of luck prevented him from losing everything. To start at the beginning, I guess of, of the festival. Yeah. Your first year was two thousand and six. Yeah. Before that, what was it you were doing? Were you working in music before? No. You were working, a normal job.
1: Uh, no, not not really. I mean, I was always like obsessed with music and used to go to all the music festivals and go to record stores, t- you know, twice a week. And I've been collecting music since I was like twelve. Yeah. Buying tapes and then building record collection up ever since I was sort of 15. So I always like wanted to be involved in music and I played in bands and was trying to sort of work a way of getting into that. You know, it all seemed such like a fairy tale and glamorous to me at that age. Mm. Being into the bands at the time like Super Fairy Animals and Pulp and White Stripes. and But basically, yeah, I was running a decorating company since I was 16 and I sort of built that up and because I had kids really young when I was 20 so I bought a house really young and then w- when I had kids I was like shit I don't want to be sort of stuck in this 9 to 5 rut and I was still like always hungry to ch- try and get involved in music and I used to DJ at Trash Club yeah. like ages ago in and Liscandale, Um, which are like these indie Britpop clubs in Soho I would go to all these festivals and we used to always have this joke of like dream lineups it was like the classic you know around the campfire thing and then I went to a few like really small ones for, for like with a thousand people there, and I saw, oh, two security guards, three, vend- you know, three food vendors, five Portalous. And I, I looked at it, it was one stage outside, one stage indoor. I thought, oh, I could, I could do this. I started talking to my friend, seriously drunk at this festival, like, yeah, we could do this. Like, it, surely it doesn't take that much money to do it. And, and when I got back home, I started to like sober up a bit, and I was thinking about the idea. I just basically. Started to try and put this really rough budget together (laughs) and literally in the field We put the budget together at that festival on the back of a cigarette packet like it was seriously done like that I was like, oh toilets must be blah. This must be blah. So
0: you were just Guessing
1: what? Yeah, I was just guessing. I was like, oh security for the weekend. That must be, you know I I run a Mm. construction company, so I knew how much toilets worth because I've hired them for site work and things like that so uh, I was just like, oh, surely, okay, the land must be like 20 grand to rent. And I was just like, ah, oh, this seems, it just seems so doable. And then I just was like, I thought, okay, so how much does it take cost to take an ad out in the enemy? So I phoned up Enemy and uncut, I was like, oh, how much, okay, £1,000 for a full page. She was like, okay. And I was so naive, I, like, I thought, oh, well... Few posters there let's put that much for the marketing budget that will sell it out <laughs> enemy people buy it was just when people stopped buying enemy <laughs> on magazines so it was like done like that and then so what so how old were you that- i was
0: 24 so you're 24 and is this the year before the year before the end festival? of the road so yeah just turned,
1: yeah just turned 25 actually
0: yeah so this is 2005 yes in the summer
1: in the summer and we actually i thought oh, i want to do this
0: festival in may Right, so you're like, there's kind of eight months. <laughs> yeah. So you're at the festival and you come up with your lineup and you kind of think, oh, toilets must cost this, and you kind of have some estimates. Yeah. And then when what well, you get back from the festival and you call meet you, you work out those other sites. I
1: tried, you. yeah, I tried to work out the other budget bits and then I was like, okay, so a site. So I phoned up, I thought, okay, there's no festivals at that time near Brighton. I was living in sort of East Sussex near Lewis Way and I was like maybe this would be a good spot because it's in between London and Brighton. So I started phoning all these old, like, you know, nice stately homes and everyone was like, no, no, we only do wedding." No, no, no. And I, then I started going a bit further and everyone was like, no, you can't use this land. You can't use this. It, it, it must have inquired like 30 emails. And then I just got fed, fed up and I just wrote, <laughs> festival site to rent in Google. And it was the only place that came up was Larmatory. Right. So I drove, we drove down there like two days later. And I thought, oh, this is pretty amazing. And then it was like, it was this trusty estate, older fuddy-duddy, and it was like, are they going to trust me? And then so I got a family friend to come with me, and we convinced them that we could do this festival, and they let us use that land. And they let you do it? Yeah, and then we still didn't know if it was going to go ahead, but I start to spend a bit of money now, and I was like, do I do this, do I not? And I was kind of still, I hadn't made the full decision, I'd got quite a lot of homework done. Mm. very inexperienced homework but I think it's like I went into Rough Trade and spoke to like Nigel House who owns the Rough Trade shops mm-hmm. and he's like yeah yeah, I can help you out with that contact so that really excited me oh yeah we can help you have a contact for Nick Cave this is his manager and I thought oh and it just really excited me as a music fan and then I ended up emailing Bell and Sebastian and Devendra Banhart and they both got back to me personally and they're like, yeah, we really like the idea, but we're not three. But it really excited me that they. I was like, wow, a rock stars talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> it, and I, it kind of just, well, I just, it made me think, oh, I can do this. It's
0: not, it's not that hard. And yeah. then, in those emails to those people who you yeah. big fans of, yeah, were you cards on the table? I've never done this before, or or did you uh, did I, you start with it? You I, have a pretense, like pretend that you. There was a, a, a
1: slight. It wasn't too pretense, but it was like, like I've. I'm doing this new music festival. This is the kind of music I like. A list of bands that I knew they'd like. I researched into what they exactly like. Yeah. This is the kind of thing we're doing. And it's these dates
0: and photo of the site. So I did sell it as much as I could. Mm. And you didn't think to put on some shows first, just like, you know, pub shows, or you went, you wanted to go straight for the... I was yeah, I, I, I think when
1: you're like 25, you just kind of think anything's possible. Mm. Like if I'd done this maybe six years later, I probably would have chickened out and not done it, possibly. And also there's loads of things I would have changed about the way I did it, because the first year we lost £400,000 of money that we didn't really have, so it was quite, it was quite scary. But right. there was a few things that started to bring it together, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to need some help. So I think it was like about a month in, I contacted Sophia, who I knew... Who I used to go to loads of gigs with that I met kind of at gigs in London, and she always managed to get into every gig for free. She'd just hang around and bump into one of the bands, and every single, and she'd always manage to get like me or another friend in. And was I, she just a music fan. She was just a music fan, but she, she wasn't just working had
0: working in the industry or anything. She just no, had.
1: but she had this knack of getting to every concert for free, whether it be. I remember she got into Bruce Springsteen at Royal Albert Hall. Like she just had this knack. She's a very social, sweet, and she's this music fan that's almost started to get noticed. People just, it was almost like, not that she's a tout, but you notice those people, like a tout, or you notice yeah, those yeah. people, or you notice like Big Jeff who's going to a gig all, all the time. It was almost like that sort of mythical character, and we, we were friends, so I contacted her, and she was, was really up for it and into it, so then I thought, okay... Because I was very shy of around like musicians as well, and I knew that she wasn't shy. So then we start making these leaflets. We, we knew we were doing the festival, so we started making these like, leaflets with some graphic design on them, like cards, mm-hmm. personal written cards to each band member, and she would like either go and meet them before the show, before soundcheck. we didn't even know what booking agents. This what, is this what? is
0: how this is how you were gonna get your lineup. For, yeah, this this is us starting in. the. Yeah, this is yeah. us starting the so festival. So what, what month is this of twenty? This is
1: probably so that must have been like January. Okay. And then we realized we had we we didn't have enough time, so we moved it to September. Okay. Because the, the, we thought we're not gonna get this get it done, get it done, and yeah, she started to just give out these flyers and we started to get this response and we didn't know what booking agents were, didn't really know anything about the music industry and then we got this call one day from this like irate booking agent, it's like what are you doing contacting my bands personally, you have to go through me and we're like who are you, like a booking agent, oh like what's that, (laughs) you know it was like, it was really like that and then
0: yeah. Who was the band that you'd got in contact that they were upset about? I think it was Richard Hawley. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was where he, he had probably just said, forwarded a message onto his book agent, said, oh, I got this about playing a show. He
1: was really nice and interested, so that probably got... Like, right. he was really, like... I remember him first saying, like... I think that was... Because we also flew out to South by that year, because we thought, oh, that's a good way of meeting bands, because everything's so intimate. And I think... Sophia went to give him a leaflet and goes, no, no, I hate festivals, don't do festivals, blah, blah, blah. And then she started to explain it, and he kind of liked the idea, so he... He kind of got behind it and then I remember when he played the festival he wanted to like meet me and we got on straight away and he started to actually help me with contacts for the next year because we still weren't in a strong position but he was like
0: a real sort of yeah. patriot of the festival. What was your pitch then? When you'd come up to an artist who would say I don't do festivals I'm not into them what was it that would make them go this is a different type of festival I I am interested now?
1: I think we just said that we wrote on there that on the initial pitch that we hated like festivals where you're treated like cattle and that there's no sponsorship, it's intimate, you know, it's an artist, it's a musician's festival. We even wrote our influences and, you know, we wrote ATP down there. We we wrote what we kind of wanted to build in an outdoor area. Mm. Um, You know, everything's going to be hand-picked. We listed all the bands that we loved and I think that, that's what appealed to them. Yeah. And also, like I think maybe at that time, how often does an artist get a personal invite? That? You know, that wasn't...
0: Yeah, and I suppose at this point, it's before there's a festival every weekend. Yeah. Like 2005, 2006. Yeah, there wasn't many. The festival boom that came was a few years after, so it was still an interesting idea. How many people did you manage to secure from that method of tracking them down and giving them a leaflet and talking to them? Quite a lot of bands, a surprising amount of bands.
1: It was like Black Mountain, Magnolia Electrico, Richard Hawley, who was just on the rise. So he was one of the big, and he headlined one of the days, I think. Uh, British Sea Power, I think Metronomy. So yeah, we did quite well from Mm. it. And then then later on we started to realise how much money we were losing and it wasn't actually selling yeah but I had this sort of stubbornness I just didn't want to let all these bands down that I'd become friends with kind of well not friends but you know like uh, they were excited by I it, was excited yeah. that, and then also I was in Rough Trade talking about it behind the counter it was before Rough Trade East and it was very sort of communal mm. feel there and like they were excited about it and Rough Trade were actually what actually really excited me is Rough Trade were going to do a stage originally because we were the first festival to have Rough Trade you know as a shop as a or, shop yeah. and stuff like that the festival and they were going to do a stage and get behind it and they were like, yeah, well, we can get, you know, you know, we can get Sufi and Stevens and we can get this and that. And mm. I was really excited about them getting involved and that also helped. And then they came along about a month later and said, really sorry, we can't be involved at all due to like this weird fucking politics with... Basically, V2 used to put out their compilations for the Rough Trade Chops, which was the subsidiary of Virgin Records. And that Virgin was c- connected to the V Festival, V Festival, yeah. So they thought that it would be conflicting,
0: right? Okay. Which is like
1: now would not not have any relevance at all. Yeah. So they just they bailed because some bigger people behind it were like, "No, you can't." You can't do that. You can't do that. So then I was like, "That was a real like arrow in the side." At that point, I was like, "Oh shit!" But I'd already spent maybe like eighty grand on resources hiring people so far to develop it, production managers Mm. and things like that. So So how are you funding that? Well, basically I sold my house to do it and I had quite a bit of equity in it. Right. Then I borrowed, like even Sophia got some money. I borrowed another 10 grand off another mate, another 20 grand off another mate just on the bank account loans. And then I kind of spent most of that or I could see that I was going to lose all that. I could see how the tickets were going. Yeah. There was a mate who needed to borrow some money about a year ago, a year before that that I'd lent like forty grand with and we have a like great trust. And he I went to him and said, Look, I need some help and he basically remortgaged his house to do it. What? That kind of saved it. It was about like I had like fifty fifty family telling me to
0: go ahead with it mm-hmm. and others telling me to pull the plug. So I mean if you'd pulled the plug you would have lost all the money, right? Everything you'd put
1: yeah, but it was a certain point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose 80 grand or I'm def Like I knew I was definitely going to lose everything. 250 to 300 in, in the first year. And so it was either like, okay, you're going to lose 100 now or you're going to lose even more. How scared were you? Was I was pretty good. scared. It was like cuz especially when you're like in a constant maybe about mm. you're trying to do this thing that you love. But you're in this maybe so you can't like, it's hard to get behind it when few people are giving you advice to just pull the plug cut your losses few yeah. people are like no and it's funny like the people with money and the clever people were probably telling me to pull the plug the people with no money who are like my friends younger music fans were like no no just go ahead because of course they love it and it was just like there was this moment where i was like okay do i do this or do i don't and i looked at it and i thought okay, well, I'm only 25 and I've done fairly well and I was still making money, quite a lot of money from the decorating company. Mm. I had 10 people working for me and we used to do a lot of schools and churches and I built that up and I thought, well, worst comes to worst, I can go back to that and I can still pay everyone back and I worked it out and it took me about three or four years to pay a few of the people Back if it didn't go well so I did it on that basis I thought okay well I'm young enough to start
0: again so you were doing this in your spare time from running decorating yeah. company You was that was st- it wasn't like you'd stopped working
1: no I couldn't stop I, I had to run the decorating company for another well I ran it for another 7 years but it was funding the festival for the first 3 years right okay but it like lost that much money in the first year the second year only lost 40 grand and the third year it started to make profit and
0: started to pay it back right once you'd really worked out the budgets of the toilets and the bands and security and all of that stuff in the site. What was the figure that you needed just to put it on? For four fifty? Four hundred? Wow. Okay. But I,
1: I also went in too big, like I, I went in and tried to get Ryan Adams, who's quite a big name at that yeah. point. You got him, right? Yeah we did, but because I was we didn't know we didn't I didn't think it mattered. So I it took ages to confirm and we didn't confirm until the first week of August, which was three, four weeks before the festival. Okay. So it didn't do anything for us, but no. I sped, spent a lot of money on it thinking that it would. So it was just like not knowing the game at all. Yeah. I had a lot of help from obviously Sophia and Philip, my dad's friend who was really good with finances. He kept things like under control and helped us. Like he realized there was certain things like we didn't have a production manager six weeks before the festival. He's like, we need to get that. So there was, it wasn't like I'm this like business genius who I mean, I've got the drive and the creativity, but he came in and really like made sure that it was gonna function as a business.
0: Yeah. How are the tickets selling? What was the capacity?
1: That's the problem, we budgeted for like 5,000. We thought that's small and that's doable. Mm -hmm. I think we sold 1,300 tickets in the first year. Right. And then we gave away close to 800 tickets by running competitions and letting everyone win. Yeah, yeah. So you run a Facebook competition. And everyone
0: who enters wins.
1: Yeah. And you try and make sure they're not all friends. So we did a bit of that. And we really, like, we just, we knew there was a certain point where we just had to get the numbers there. And obviously bar money and all that counts. And I remember, like, the first, when we were setting up the festival, I, like, couldn't sleep for, like, seven days on site. And it really was touch and go because we had just enough people in that first year to create an atmosphere. Yeah. And obviously the main stage was all in the gardens at that time. Yeah. It was kind of hilarious because it was like I remember like the breaks playing in the big top. I had like my mum even running to tell people to go to the big top right. to make it feel full. All that's right. how it like, it was, okay. which was embarrassing. I didn't want her to do that. <laughs> and I just remember because we had bad weather forecast, and I thought, okay, that's it. We're kind of fucked. If four hundred people don't turn up, then and it's rains, then we, that's it. We're yeah. not. Gonna, yeah. And literally, we just got over. We got so lucky. We got overcast for the whole weekend, and then we got some great reviews. And that was at a point where I think great reviews of the festival actually made a difference to next year's Mm. ticket sales. Like the, you know, now I think even in broadsheets, like the review gets noticed for a week, but it actually had this effect and momentum. And because we really pushed about on that first year, trying to make like we we thought okay, we'll do loads of secret gigs, we'll get bands to do fun things. We tried to make it as different from other festivals at the time as possible, because we just thought okay, we've got these people. If they have an amazing time they'll tell their friends they tell people and that's what happened we doubled like the next year we didn't advertise quite as much and we doubled it and then the third
0: year we, we sold out so so the i mean that's quite amazing to go from in three years to sell out from a first year that was you had like 1300 ticket sales yeah. yeah i mean that's quite an incredible <laughs> yeah i think
1: yeah we got that word of mouth and it captured that the public's imagination of, of that kind of music fan
0: at the time, yeah. for sure. On that day, when you went down to the site and the gates opened and it's all on, how close was it to what you imagined in your mind from when you wrote down the things on that fag packet at the I um, mean,
1: step? I didn't get the kind of the dream bands, obviously, that I wanted, you know, but I was being a bit ridiculous thinking that I'd get Tom Waits and Nick Cave in the first year and, and in and Stevens. But it was very close in terms of, like, the stage was the same garden stage that you see at End of the Road now. And it did feel quite magical, so it was pretty amazing. I mean, I think a lot of people in, like, family or friends just expected it to be this little sort of summer fate thing with an ale tent. Mm. So I think it surprised a few people who, were like, who weren't... Also people who, weren't, who knew me but weren't as close that
0: came because I was telling people to come. Yeah. Were people worried for you? That it was not going to work and you were going to be broke, or at that point had they just thought this is something he obviously needs to get out of his system.: I
1: think they felt more get, get out of the system is going to do what what he likes. I was always quite independent and entrepreneur in the sense that I was was like setting up my own work, so I think if they were worried I'd,
0: I didn't find out about it. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. did you use any of your the, the decorating? company was it just a decorating company or was it was construction as well right uh, decorating was, carpentry but carpentry stuff yeah did you use your team on that to come and work the festival Cause, yes because yeah. there's so much of
1: we used a lot of in- that and yeah and a lot of friends who are all involved in that in the yeah. trades as well so it was all like all that decoration and still is loads of school friends yeah
0: That first year happens, you lose around 400 grand. Yeah. And are you thinking, I've learned these things, or are you thinking 400 grand's a lot of money? Like It's a lot of people that be like, I can't be losing 400 grand. Like, that's insane. And they would just walk away from that. I think the
1: next year, like some people are saying, take a year off and, you know, rethink things. Right. And I was like, no, we're going to lose the momentum. But I think we just thought, okay, let's do all we could do and get them on sale cuz you can tell there's a certain point obviously where you can pull the plug and not lose much at all. Yeah. And we thought okay, let's do it all up until the point where the bands asked for the deposits. Yeah. So there was a chance that it could have been pulled the second year but it did go really well. Like well, it doubled. So that was a case of you put the tickets on sale early before there was a lineup. Yeah, that didn't but then we got to announce it cuz you don't have to pay the bands until later. Right. Okay. So we kind of did wing it yeah we felt yeah we were like okay let's see how it goes there's no point in stopping this now and then people had a bit more faith in us because we got those good reviews and we started to get slightly bigger bands and i remember speaking to like uh, rob chalice at the time he's a friend of mine booking agent and he had yellow tango and lamb chop a few other bands and he phoned me up and i didn't know him that well and he's like look if you can definitely guarantee that they're going to be paid blah 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 we'll let you have these bands and that helped so we got that it was just a bit more faith in it because the first year everyone loads of people just saying us, no no not many people want to take a risk of a festival understandably so we did get a lot of just flat out nos from agents and managers yeah and the second year, start to build it a bit more we had like super fairy animals yellow tango lamb chop and it started to move a bit and then each year it becomes less and less chasing. So like five years in bands were like asking us to headline the festivals, which which is good. Sure.
0: So presumably the method of getting artists by tracking them down and giving them a handwritten yeah. note for the second year. And with the booking agents calling you and saying, don't do that, is that that's off, right? No, I, I, we, I, I, we kind of thought, fuck you. Like what?
1: We're still going to, at that point we thought we're still going to contact the booking agent and do it mm-hmm. properly in a business fashion but what's wrong with dropping a personal card to a band Like, yeah. and to be honest the one or two booking agents who did that as far as I'm concerned they're just paranoid about nothing mm. if they've got a good relationship with their artists they shouldn't worry about someone asking them it doesn't matter so I was just like no and we carried on doing that we gave a personal letter to like Sifian for like every single year when he played 2015 he kept the first letter we ever gave him I remember, and, po- yeah. and posted it which he hardly ever posted anything and like I still do that now with special bands, but it's less like, oh, this is our lineup. We've got a lot more to show yeah, for yeah, yeah. it. And I'm a bit more experienced, but like, I mean, I just literally got a letter from Will Oldman because I've been sending him like these messages and dropping like cool little illustrations off it and things that he might like at his gigs for like 10 years. So he like, wrote, I don't know how he got my address, but he like wrote me this whole letter about how he doesn't like festivals but maybe one day he, he can find a way of dealing with it
0: okay so it works so obviously. it still works and now. it was a
1: really yeah, it was a really sweet letter and i understand but like i'm still gonna ask him every year
0: yeah <laughs> and now i presume those artists when they receive a letter from end of the road or from you they know who you are and they know what that festival is.
1: yeah so yeah quite a lot i probably do that with like two or three artists a year now it's not as much but it was definitely in the first seven years because we knew we were punching above our weight and also we didn't expect like we didn't know that latitude was going to pop up the first year we we came and all these Mm. and it's not like we want massive favors but we don't have like huge budgets we don't have huge sponsorship so we'd like it to be viewed in the way that you can play your big huge reading or leeds festival a bit like you could play your ot arena but then it's cool to go and play the hundred club
0: yeah and hopefully it'll be viewed that way to some people Now though, from 2006 to now, festivals have kind of gone on this mad journey of maybe five years ago, there seemed to be like one every single day of the week for a summer and it was like boom time. Loads have collapsed, loads kind of come and gone. It kind of feels like it's settled down a bit now, but it does also feel that we're in a world of exclusivity deals and people being paid by huge festivals, insane amounts of money so they don't play anywhere else. Does that really affect th- things for you?
1: I think it does. And the fees are actually higher than they ever were. But I also think there's still people who are setting up festivals and they don't even get running. It's, it's, I, I don't know if it has quite settled down. Mm. I know a few have disappeared, but then there's a few more that are going to come. Yeah, mm. and a few more started last year. But the exclusivity obviously does affect us sometimes and I think it affects any festival. But in one way, it's like, okay, well, you can't, get the National or whatever, they're playing, you know, this year, British Sun and Time or something. It kind of forces you to be more creative and think of bands that the others are not, are not necessarily have. thinking of. Mm. And then they go, oh, yeah, and then they go, and they might book it the next year. But, it, yeah, it forces you to be a bit more interesting sometimes with your lineup up mm. in, in one way. So competition's sometimes healthy. But, yeah, of course, it pisses me off sometimes. Like, you get exclusivity deals with these big festivals and they can't play anything else but I think some of the good agents who care about their bands or good managers know that like you know St Vincent played all points east last year and that could have easily been possibly an exclusive but he knows that it's good for her to headline end of the road yeah it's a good look and etc so I think we've got a lot of credibility amongst artists so like it's funny some festivals will go yeah we want an exclusive but if you actually if the agent just says no you can't have it they don't always need it. Why does, like, British Summertime need to have an exclusive on, like, Green Man or End of the Road? Oh, yeah, it doesn't yeah. affect their audience whatsoever. So, yeah.
0: yeah. What is the community of other people putting on festivals like? Is it a friendly one? Are you instantly a competition? Did they welcome you as part of this world of trying to put on a big shows in fields? Or were you... As a new festival, how did you feel?
1: I think... There was a little bit of sort of snide comments here and there, but generally now, because of the association with like independent festivals, it's a lot more friendly and Mm. accepting. It's not like we're a big corporate company threatening any of the majors or anything like that, but there's definitely a bit of animosity like from some at first. But you know, to be fair, I think ATP, um, I used to see like comments in his program about like latitudes just. The middle-class cunts with debt chairs and blah 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 and Barry was quite funny like that but musically he did he did start that kind of before that when would Mogwai or a band like Anthony Johnson's or someone like that ever or China Newsom headline a festival mm. they were headlining his festivals and he had that corner of the market in a way and that sort of indie kind of alternative music that's not super mainstream in a sort of Libertine's White Stripes way He had that area of the market, but I think the outdoor festivals, because he was so like, I'll never do an outdoor show. I'll never do an outdoor show, and he slagged them off so much. Mm. And basically, a lot of these festivals were kind of doing ATP outdoors in a way. And like Latitude, you know, then had Mogwai headline and Anton Johnson's headline on, on their first year. So there's a lot of credit to be said for. I mean, he influenced me. I used to go there when I was 18, 19.
0: So yeah. To do all of this, it feels like you have to be... or you, you obviously have to have, like, a kind of... The naivety of youth that you had as a 25-year-old who just thought, I can start again if this goes wrong. Yeah. But even now, to put it on, are you good with stress? I get
1: better every year. I wasn't that good in the first few years because it's always that panic of, like, this time of year especially, you're trying to book all the bands as exclusives getting thrown around, everyone's mm-hmm. fighting for their corner and everyone's... So it, it does developed some sort of level of stress but i've become so calm with it now and i have to because otherwise i'll go nuts but i used it used to be really bad up until about three or four years ago and now i just feel like we're gonna make it work and there's enough bands that are coming to us and there's always like people want to play into the road so it is it's definitely easier but you always worry like you do need those couple of bands like we're going to sell like seven or eight thousand tickets probably without announcing anything in one way like we could easily do do that. We, Mm. we, it proves by, you know, selling 2000 early birds in one hour and we could carry on doing that. But to get that, those extra three, two or 3000 people are not like your diehard music fans. They're the people who will know like three or four of the lineup or your locals. And you need that to make the business go into profit and festivals not. Most festivals, well, like of our size, I think, you know, they only make money on those last two or 3000 tickets,
0: right? Yeah. So the margins are quite narrow. They are quite narrow, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not like you can half fill it and you're going to be fine.
1: No, no.
0: You have to kind of fill it each time. Yeah. One thing I'm interested in is, obviously, as a festival goer, you kind of expect that's a three-day event, say, a festival. To get it to that three days, yeah. somebody who's putting on a festival, what do you do? The day after a festival finishes, I imagine must be quite a weird, depressing time, like a bit of sweet <laughs> thing. Big giant come down, yeah. Yeah, huge come down, because you've worked all year on it. It's not as yeah. if you can't really, you don't work on it for like two months and then put a festival on. Yeah. You work on it all year, right? It's also quite a good state. There's a lot of it. You feel really good. Yeah, it, Yeah. Just map me through how your year runs the day festival finishes. Do you, what, do you take a holiday for a certain amount of time? Do you not think about it for a month? It depends how much management work with Ezra or
1: someone else <laughs> I've got on. But this year I didn't get too much of a break because I decided to have the two bands that I work with play the festival and be on tour at the time. But usually I I, li- I just sort of completely just relax for like a week and a half, two weeks. But the booking process is so... like I remember we didn't worry about bookings in the first couple of years till January or February. And now we're starting with headliners. 14 months before the festival.
0: Right, okay. So, for the following year? So yeah, You're starting to book the following year before the current year's on?
1: Sometimes with a couple of the bigger names, mm. headliners. Every time I book a band that I love, it, it, it gives you like a warm feeling. You get really excited, and it's like you, you're listening to a lot of records and you're checking out new music, you're going to gigs, and mm. it's quite fun, but it's still stressful because you're like, you're getting no's and yeses, and you think you're going to get this great band and then all of a sudden, you know, one of them's having a baby or whatever and you put all that work in and you have to start again. Yeah. So, and then obviously there's the whole team in the office that are all year round, like Lauren and Charlie, and that's constantly like working out budgets and dealing with contracts and you've got the aftermath of the last year. Of, there's so much like clean up to do not yep. just from physically cleaning up the festival site but the finances and mm-hmm. all the programming and you've got to get and then so January and February is built on like changing the website marketing it, coming up with a new design coming up with a new look announcement video and then it's kind of fairly chill between for me but not for everyone in the office but from sort of February till May and then it just gets busier and busier and busier building up to the, ramping up to the That's festival it. and more and more people get involved and you end up having like four or five hundred people working on the festival, obviously, on the 10 days before, and yeah, it starts on this skeleton crew in the office three or four, and then June there might be 10 people in the office, and just yeah, just ramps and ramps up. So, and the yeah. capacity is currently 15,000 15, 15, yeah. on site, include that's including guest lists, bands, traders, everyone, yeah,
0: yeah. But in the but it's the core team is still like three or four of you,
1: yeah, Lauren myself, Charlie, Anna, part-time who does the press, and then Polly, who's like half the time on production. So, yeah. Yeah, so, it's, yeah
0: it's it's small, for a festival that size, that feels like a small core team.
1: Yeah, I think we have to keep it that way because to make it a viable business as well. And there's a lot of time
0: of year where there isn't much to do, so... Yeah. yeah. Obviously, in the first year, you lost like a, a lot of money, and it, but it only took you three years to get to a point where it, was making cash, it was doing well. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah, about three years. Yeah. Was
1: there? Well, it was still paying back the losses. So I don't know when we actually started to make profit.
0: You know, because we were still paying back yeah. the
1: losses. So I think that was probably not till year five that actually making
0: money. So next year will be your fourteenth year. Yeah. In that period of time, has there been any massive bumps in the road? Any moments where you've just thought, where it doesn't look viable to do it? it was mainly on that first year, even on site. Like it was so
1: stressful for me. Like couldn't, I just couldn't, couldn't sleep. And I was get, I wasn't like drinking heavily, but I was kind of drinking at night to kind of block what the fuck was going on. Like it's so hard to explain. Like, oh yeah, you lost that much money until it happens to you. And you just feel like, ah, you feel like shit, I'm going to lose everything and I'm going to end up doing that and just paying debts back for the next four years. So that's what I was kind of faced with in my mind. And I was being a bit of a dick, to be honest. Like I was, Try, I was getting involved, but there was other people who were taking care of a lot of things, and I, w- I wasn't sleeping, and I remember, like, on the site, like, ten days before, the the bars had arrived, and they were like, yeah, yeah, have as many drinks as you like, they were like, I mean, they were quite rogue bar traders our first year, and I just remember, like, drinking, I, it was the first time in a 4x4, and I was like, oh, this is, f-, you know, fun, like, driving a 4x4 in a field, and literally just... Drove this four by four like in the mist, doing like donuts and stuff, and I drove it straight down towards the bottom of the the hill, out of sight, and and then all of a sudden this verge arrived because it was misty, and I have flung on the brakes and it all locked up and we flipped and rolled this four by four like ripped out this whole like wall hedge row, and we were on its top like crushed, and I remember like being really worried and like kicking out the front window grabbing my mate out and we didn't have like a scratch on us but i had whiplash for about two years afterwards and then after, after that i was just like shitting myself i was like fuck i'm over the festival's like over they, the land's going to kick us off this is like four days before for the seven days before the festival was going to start for the first festival yeah, yeah. on site and we were trying to keep a good thing up for the people who run the estate and so like i just was i started like crying freaking out with my mates like it's okay we can sort it out so we'd like like the bar people forklifted lifted the truck out and we hid it behind this tree. And then I was like, OK, but look at their estate. I've just done that and I'm supposed to be organised at a festival. And I remember like phoning the estate and we just basically made up the story that we hired someone who just got drunk and drove the vehicle and flipped it. Right. And we kicked them off site and we're getting everything under control. And they were really nice about it. Like, OK, yeah, these things happen. You know, you know I'd, I'd made a massive thing out. Obviously, it was a big deal, but I was just everything in my mind because I was like not sleeping and a nervous wreck. But oddly it was the best thing to happen to me because then I just like thought, shit, I've got to get my shit together. Eight days, got the crew together, like really focused, stopped drinking, stopped like being a prick and like really like started getting creative with the site and really like, how can we make this the best festival? So it was kind of a wake up call because I was in this sort of state of like just ignoring what I was facing so that was the biggest bump in the road.
0: Yeah, <laughs> a flip in the road. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wrote it off, and on Top Gear, they tried to write off a Toyota Hilux, and took them, I don't know if you saw that no. show. They, they spent ages trying to write it off, but we wrote it off in one in go. One so guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in one go. Yeah.
0: Since you've started, in all the years that you've done it, I'm guessing, has a big company asked to buy it off you
1: they've made noises yes, yes. but no one's like I've always been a bit cocky Chris, and so sort I of said well they won't be able to afford it because it's worth more to me than it would be to them mm. but they yeah I've had like people like yeah would you be interested in having a chat and I've kind of like they've played that game where they want me to come to them and I've just been like well send me enough so not yes but no yeah yeah they've kind of wanted a meeting they've won the meeting but I've never been bothered to go and meet them or chase them yeah. or... it's like tell me your number if you, you can send that in an email <laughs> kind of like that yeah but definitely people have definitely made noises and they've used and they've had other people tell me figures that it could be and it's been quite a lot of money but I don't doesn't really interest me at all
0: Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to receive all future episodes.